If you've ever been to Venice, you remember the gondolas and the picturesque waterways. And you remember the food, too. Superb food prepared with that very special Italian touch. Welcome back to Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebert. James Beard Award-winning video producer and food writer for the Chicago Reader, Serious Eat Chicago, Thrillist, and more. First off, I go to the kitchen at Fat Rice, where Abraham Conlon and Adrian Lowe, chef owners of the world's first Portuguese Macanese hipster fusion spot, take on a new frontier, dim sum. Then it's Erling Wu Bauer, veteran of Paul Kahn restaurants like Avec and The Publican, and now executive chef at Nico Osteria. I talk with him about how you get seafood from all around the world and cook it like Italians in the Midwest. Joe Campagna has a food blog. That's not so rare. What is rare is that he's a food blogger who actually worked in the business. So we'll talk about that. And Karen and Jody Warner are organic farmers from Benton Harbor, Michigan, who are big fans of the upcoming Good Food Festival. I talked with them about why that festival matters to farmers and why farmers matter to you and me. That's all in Episode 9 of Airwaves Full of Bacon, the plastic chair calling dibs on the Chicago food scene. I'm at Fat Rice on a Friday afternoon as they prepare for the final practice run of their new dim sum menu. When I first met Abraham Conlon and Adrian Lowe, they were doing underground dinners and hoping to open a high-quality Asian restaurant called Flower and Bones in Logan Square. Flower and Bones found a better name, Fat Rice, and it definitely found an audience. It packs them in every night and is drawing the kind of media attention that Momofuku in New York and Mission Chinese in San Francisco have enjoyed. I'm here from the reader to photograph and write about their newest venture, which is opening at lunchtime to serve Macau's version of Dim Sum. Tomorrow will be one last test run before they open it to the public. But I don't see anybody making dumplings. Abe Conlon comes up the stairs to greet me. Hey, hey hello, Larry. Thanks, I'm sorry. No problem. My hands Good to see you. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, what is the plan? I'm going to shoot, yeah, shoot things over by the sunlight. Okay, over there. My beautifully appointed studio. Okay, great. And then I want to get some, like, shots of things being made. So, Do you want some shots of things being made? Well, I mean, just whatever's going on in the kitchen. I know some things will be pre-made or maybe... Well, here's some comment. So, we're still working some things out. So, watch your head. Okay. Um... Hello, how are you? So we're making the Shaolin Bao, that might be something that you want to see sure. being made. I mean, so what are you making there? So making um, our Chu Chow style dumpling here. This is our vegetarian dumpling that we're doing with uh, squash, hazelnuts, pea tendrils, uh, jicama. And, uh, still in the works though, still figuring out a shape. Dough is too wet and it's breaking. So. so that's much whiter than the other dough. What's So this is a wheat starch dough. It's like, crisp, like a crystal like a, like, dumpling? Yeah, it's like a um, you know like a shrimp hugout. 
Okay. So it's uh, wheat starch and tapioca starch. So when you steam it, it becomes clear. Um, yeah, I don't know if we're going to work with this. I think we're going to have to make it again. Yeah. And who knows if it can ride overnight. I mean, maybe it can't ride overnight. We are doing a um, the Macanese version of high tea. It's called Cha Gordo. So it incorporates some dumplings, but it incorporates some larger dishes as well. Uh, you have your traditional dim sum, which is just kind of small, 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 small plate. With Cha Gordo is more of um, kind of a, a community celebration. It might be at somebody's house or something like that, where usually people are standing up and they are, um, you know, kind of eating eating a bunch of different things. Maybe it's dumplings. Maybe it's the fat rice. Maybe it's um, you know noodles. That sort of thing. So, a little bit heavier than dim sum. So, is dim sum what, what region then is dim sum? Dim sum is, is, is distinctly yeah, Cantonese, and and, and 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 you see it in Macau a lot. But uh, for our for our particular version, we want we wanted to incorporate just a couple um, more Macanese style things. I think I it's not going to work, don't worry about it. It's not going to work, it ain't going to work. We have been through 100 trials of these. We finally nailed the deal with it. It's been a two-year two process. Secrets involved. Secrets, mystery, and magic. And why'd you want to do dip sum? Because I'm a masochist. <laughs> um, well, I mean, this town loves brunch. And for us, you know, it's, um, there's like a lot of things in like the, 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 the Macanese repertoire that we can't really do at night because they're more snacky items or they're kind of smaller items, like the pork chop sandwich, which is, which is super classic of uh, Macau, the egg tart, which is super classic of Macau. So we decided that this would be like a perfect opportunity to be able to share some of those things. I mean, it's a lot of research. <laughs> it's a lot of eating. It's a lot of trial and error because you know we're we're you know we're not experienced so much in this style of food and so you know you go to Chinatown and you know Chicago and these people have been making this kind of food their entire lives and they can you know knock it out and, and it's 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 technically kind of perfect. The only thing is you know you see that they don't use quality ingredients, you know, and so that was kind of the motivation, like, wow, like, these items could be amazing if they just, you know, focused a little bit, used a little bit better ingredients, or had a little, a little bit more attention to the flavors and things like that. So, we got the flavors, now we're just pushing for the technique. So, um, long but it's, uh, you know, this is something we've always wanted to do since since uh, opening of Fat Rice. You know, we always wanted to do some form of lunch or brunch. And, um, you know, this is kind of the next logical thing for us to do. Well, yeah, you were talking about, like, kanji or something. Yep. Six months ago or whatever yeah. that was. <laughs> a year ago, whenever that was. Yep. So, I mean, we have a kanji on the menu. We're, we, oh, okay. we do a, um, we're doing a, uh, it's a, Tomato and saffron-based uh, congee with clams, bacon, and a, um, and a soft-boiled egg. Uh, really nice. And we're doing um, 
La Casa. La Casa is uh, cousin cousin of laksa, so uh, the Malaysian uh, noodle dish. Uh, in Macau, you see two different kinds. You see like a brothy version, then you see a um, a dry stir fried version, which is we do that at night time. But so we have two different kinds of lakasa for the brunch. We have the um, fish ball and shrimp with the tamarind curry, and then we have a, uh, a tofu puff with tea egg and um, um, and like a coconut, like a mild coconut curry. On there too. Um, so those those three we have uh, minchi, which is one of the most um, like prevalent home-style Macanese dishes. It's of Anglo origin, hence mince, minchi. It's chopped up uh, beef and pork that's been stir-fried. Essentially, it's a not-so-sloppy, sloppy joe, <laughs> over-served over rice with uh, fried egg and, and, and potatoes. It's like the perfect hangover cure. It's pretty awesome. Um, eventually, we're probably going to put that on the sandwich as well, on a, on a bun as well to make a sandwich. And then we're doing a um, pork chop bun, simply Papo Seco, the Portuguese style bread, with the fried pork chop on top, and uh, a couple of shrimp chips and some uh, pickles. Okay. So are these mostly things that you had had and you wanted to make your own versions of them, or was it mostly? I mean, some some of some of us some of these things is recreating like perfection, you know, like re pork chop sandwich. It's a pork chop and a bun. You know what I mean? And it's the best thing in the world. That's not the easiest thing to make. The um, the Portuguese style egg tart. It's puff pastry and custard. Yeah, yeah but it, it, it's hot. It's how do you make it all happen at once? How do you get the top caramelized, the custard set, and the pastry brown all at the same time? I mean, like I said, 150 trials at least, at least, and. Um, Finally, we, we got something close to where we're at, but, you know, it's still at like 50%. I mean, people are going to run out the street screaming for them, but it's still, for me, I, I've had the real thing, you know, you know, get a good starting point, then try to get closer and closer and closer. Dim Sum happens Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at Fat Rice, 2957 West Diversity. Those photos you heard me snapping appeared at the reader, and they're gorgeous. So check them out. I'll have the direct link at skyfullofbacon.com. Chicago has been a capital of fine dining porkiness for a good decade now, with restaurants like the Publican, Avec, and Publican Quality Meats. Something else all those restaurants have in common? A cook named Erling Wu Bauer, who worked his way up through all of those Paul Kahn kitchens. He's now the executive chef of Kahn's new Nico Osteria, but this time it's not about pigs. How do you do world-class fish in the middle of the country? I sat down for breakfast at Nico to ask Wu Bauer why fish, and especially how fish, in 2014. I always wanted to bring a seafood Italian restaurant to Chicago. Uh, and, and of course, when you say seafood in Chicago, the first reaction is, well, are people going to eat it, and how do we get it here? And certainly we fight those battles day in and day out, but 
that was the that was the that was the concept at its base. It was a seafood restaurant, Italian-based seafood restaurant in Chicago. So, what is Italian seafood versus seafood? What what does that mean precisely? As opposed to opening another Shaw's or something. <laughs> well, that's the difference, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, at, at, at first glance to the to the customer, it means pasta. Um, it means any pasta. It means traditional Italian dishes, um, but it also means that we research. I mean, we, we hit the books hard in this company, and we hit the books really hard here at Nico, um, especially the chefs. And we read Italian cookbooks. And we read Italian cookbooks in Italian. Um, something that I consistently push for is to discover Italian techniques that we've never that we've never used before, and apply them to the way that we cook here in Chicago with fish. Um, I mean, seafood can go a thousand ways. Seafood's cooked all over the world. Um, some, sometimes well, sometimes not well. Um, we bring beautiful product in. We treat it with respect, and um, we treat it with, a, with an Italian um, aesthetic. Um, not even even further than that, an, an Italian an Italian method, I would say. I mean, that in itself is a change from what the group has has usually done. Although I, I guess a Vec was heading toward Italian. It had a fair number of pretty Italian things, but it also had, you know, braised porky German things and stuff like that on it. Right. Um, so was there a conscious decision that Italian was something you should get into someday, you think? Or? Uh, I mean, that makes it sound like a business decision, Yeah. which it wasn't. Um, the decisions here are made because of what we want to cook and what we want to eat. Um, I've always loved Italian food. Um, I've spent a lot of time on the West Coast. Um, and uh, and I keep talking about reading the literature that we read. The Food Revolution is sort of with Alice Waters, um, and Paul Bertoli is an Italian American food revolution, um, especially in the San Francisco area. That, I mean, there are non-Italian restaurants there. Of course, the French Laundry. We've all heard of them. But if you go to San Francisco and you eat food, you're eating house-made pastas and beautifully simply prepared meats. Um, it's an Italian tradition out there, and, and the books that have come out of that uh, and the exposure um, of something so influential um, to cooks all over the country uh, was Italian. Um, so Paul and I, um, and kind of the generation of cooks that came up around me, read a lot of Italian cookbooks, Alice Waters, Paul Bertoli. Um, and even though it might not have read as Italian at other restaurants, we were using very Italian methods at the other restaurants. I mean, um, the publican reads like a, a German beer hall. I mean, that's the concept, but it's not. It's an American restaurant. We use methods from all over the world, and the overwhelming method that's used, believe it or not, at the publican, I say, would be Italian. Um, I mean, there's not pastas on the menu, but we read Italian cookbooks and we use Italian methods and we use Italian sauces. And the style of food is Italian. Simple protein, a sauce over the top, no reduced sauces. Um, so, and, and at Avec, when I went to Avec, I definitely pushed the menu towards Italy, Morocco, away from Spain, um, even towards Turkey, because that's, that's where I kind of wanted to focus on. Um, and there's just not that much French technique in my repertoire, so that's that's where um, that's where it kind of all started to me. And I've always, I mean, I've loved pasta forever. I just, I love pasta. I love making pasta. I love stuffing pasta. I love eating pasta. I love the entire process. 
and I like the Italian speed of life and the way it corresponds to food. So. What I personally think it is is that the Mediterranean is such a rich grounds, not only for fish but also for livestock and for vegetables. It's just a, one of the most ideal places in the world to grow anything, right? Yeah, <laughs> the Mediterranean Sea. That's why California is so amazing too. It's the same climate, almost arid but not quite. Vegetables have to struggle a little bit producing fruit. That's amazing. Um, that's why that whole region kind of cooks the same. It's like why, why do a, you don't run into places in, 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 in southern Spain and southern France and Italy that really force food because they don't have to. Yeah. everything's perfect. Everything's beautiful already. So why mess it up? So what are some of the the dishes that you think really? sum that up what are things you're excited to be I mean, making the crudo would be the perfect example the entire crudo section of the menu we basically bring in the best fish from all over the world I'm not exaggerating I mean the Japanese get all the very very best stuff <laughs> but I mean if you if you look at menus from all over the world we're using the same stuff um, as the best sushi restaurants all over the world and we have essentially a direct line to the Skiji market in Tokyo Japan um and we also use the best domestic seafood as well. And we essentially just cut it and put it on a plate, and we just highlight it. We're just, I mean, I've always I've discovered, as of the last maybe two years, that the three keys to succeeding in this industry are bringing in a great staff, um, investing in them, and bringing in great ingredients and, and respecting them. And that's largely what I do here, is I just bring in, I find the best ingredients that I can find. And I spend the money on them, because good things end up costing money. Yeah. Uh, and then just don't get in their way. It's exactly what we were just talking about, right? Why spoil a beautiful piece of mackerel when scallion, sea salt, vinegar, and olive oil? You can't do any better. There's nothing else you can do to make that fish better. I mean, there might be some ego that gets in the way. But why? Why Why do you need that? You were saying you get stuff from Tsukuchi. Yeah, how does sourcing work now? So that's this is the the key to my job, is sourcing. Um, and sourcing fish especially. Um, one, because it's the key to the menu, but two, because it's incredibly expensive and you can't waste it. Uh, but what we do is we get a report that comes via LA uh, three times a week of what will be available to Fiji, and we do a ton of research. I mean, the internet is an incredible thing. It would not have been possible. This type of restaurant would not have been possible 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, we sit down and we do a ton of research. We watch a lot of YouTube. <laughs> and and we and we buy fish, and, and we, we always push ourselves to buy fish that we've never heard of. We've never worked with Sawara, which is a, a Spanish mackerel, like a large Spanish mackerel. It's actually now it's king mackerel from Tuskegee. Never worked with it. Coming in. Fish comes in, cut it open, look at its quality. Decide we're going to return it. <laughs> we return a ton of fish. And then, and then taste it, eat it, and think about what's going to complement it. And, and that's it. That's what we do. Um, but consistently, I mean, the crazy thing is how little of each of these ingredients is available in America on a day-to-day basis. Like, there's, there's probably, you know, 20, 30 restaurants that serve this stuff countrywide. Yeah. Stuff. And getting your hands on it's hard. You have to act fast. You have to be educated about when it's going to come in, how it's going to arrive. 
and, and it, just mastering all of those channels and makes sourcing what it is. I mean, I'm a FedEx expert. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that that's a, I'm not bragging about it. I'm also an airline shipping expert. It's just something that you have to do as a chef. People don't realize um, that, like, that's a very important aspect of being a chef is understanding shipping and how it works in this country, especially with something as perishable as fish. Yeah. One of the more revolutionary things I realized here is that time has nothing to do with freshness as far as fish goes. Hmm. Um, it has something to do with it, but very little. So I can get identical species from California and from Japan. The Japanese product could be literally two days older, and it could be still in rigor mortis, still perfect, and the stuff from California could be not good. Yeah. And the, it's all about how the fish is killed and how it's treated. The Japanese just kill and treat and ship fish perfectly for the purpose of serving it raw. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. Hmm. Um, so what what are they doing that's, that's better than that? Well, one is that, so, I mean, one is that when the fish is caught or taken out of its farmed environment, it's treated well. So, like, just think about a fish flopping on the deck. Think yeah. about what's happening with the flesh while a fish is flopping on the deck. Um, a lot of American fishermen just take their fish and one, they catch them in huge nets where they drown and they lift them up in a net that has thousands of pounds of fish in it. All those fish are crushing each other. Just think about what that's doing to the flesh of the fish. Um, and then a lot of American fishermen, like when the bite's on, they just keep fishing. These fish are just on the deck, sitting with each other, sliming around not being bled, not being not being treated well. Japanese don't do that. Fish is caught, it's handled as an individual, it's handled with care, it's immediately bled, so the heart pumps out all of the blood, which is the first thing that goes bad. You know, it's put in a padded box so it doesn't, you know, so it doesn't beat itself up. And it's, you know, it's, it's wrapped in special paper so it stays moist, it's not just thrown into a huge crate. If necessary, it's immediately, it's immediately gutted. Although most Japanese don't gut their fish because their fish are treated so well, you can eat the insides of them. Huh. Um, so it's just a, it's an entirely different world. The American market hasn't has yet to realize that there is a lot of money in not just catching a lot of fish, which is the American way, but catching fish, smaller amounts of fish, but selling them for four times the price because <laughs> you're treating them right. Yeah. Um, so that's hmm. been a very interesting thing. any other brilliant recommendations for Italian seafood, but jumping back a story, this is a pretty good time for Chinese food in Chicago. There's only one fat rice, but a number of more conventional Chinese restaurants have opened in the last couple of years that I like more than a lot of the old standbys. For dim sum, that would be Kai, C-A-I, which is on the upper level of the Chinatown Square Mall on Archer, just north of the original Wentworth Street Chinatown. It gets really busy on weekends, which is a good thing, because it means everything on the cart is freshly cooked. There are other new dim sum places in the mall too, Ming Hin and Lao Yuju, but Kai's my favorite. 
On a side street in Chinatown is Go for Food. That's Go number four food, which sounds like a grocery store, but has the best hot and sour soup in town and excellent seafood dishes, including a very reasonable whole fried Dungeness crab. And on the north side, check out Chengdu Impression, which is apparently run by a nephew of Tony Hu of Lao Sichuan fame. The attention is focused more on the exotic stuff, but even the conventional things I've ordered from there have had a lot of rich, funky flavor, improving my stable of Chinese delivery options immensely. I'll have links for all of those in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. Joe Campagna has a food blog. Yeah, him and everybody else, you say. But his food blog, Chicago Food Snob, brings something different to the table, which is his experience in top restaurants like Charlie Trotter's and Graham Elliott. So when he reviews or writes about something, it's coming from a perspective that knows how the business really works. He's a born and bred Chicagoan who grew up in the Italian Near West Burbs on Armand's Pizza from Elmwood Park. So we met for lunch at Forno Rosso, a VPN-certified Neapolitan-style pizza restaurant on Harlem Avenue, and started our conversation over owner Nick Nitti's grandmother's caponata. I don't mean it's her recipe. I mean the old gal is still making it every week and, Nick says, won't share the recipe or let him watch how she does it. That old-school item seemed the perfect accompaniment for a conversation that would run from fine dining to classic Chicago-Italian. You know, I left the corporate world at 27 with no clue when the economy downturned in the first, uh, you know, recession of 2000, and I found myself going to culinary school. Um, it was that or, or going to be a teacher because I liked to train corporately, and, and I had done that before. So I went to corporate. Uh, I went to culinary school. Uh, my first job out of it was working for Charlie Trotter. I worked uh, all the time I could when I wasn't in school, whether it was at the to-go or the restaurant doing as much as I could for little to no money and it really wasn't about that for me it was really you know just getting the experience you know, culinary school was the degree but um, the, the time there was almost like getting your MBA and I learned after that that you know anybody you know will at least give you the interview because you have that on the resume and that was really you know what I think a lot of people didn't understand is that the first year you're at Trotter's you take a lot from the experience, but you really don't give anything back to the restaurant other than your labor. You're not, you know, creative enough. You don't understand. You're, you're truly learning to walk. And then once you learn to walk, you, you bolt and go be a sous chef somewhere or go make more money or, or whatever. But if you stay two or three years, then you're starting to really get back um, to that experience. But I was there about a year. I went and worked at another restaurant called Fortunato, which is no longer around, uh, made the Garmage station, my own, and also did a lot of work uh, with the fresh pastas that we did, which was great. From there, I you know, went and opened a restaurant up in Glenview as the chef, which was unique and fun. Uh, and while I was there, the concept from the owners wanted to change pretty quickly, so I found my old friend Graham Elliott, worked with him in Vermont, came back and uh, was at Avenues with him in the kitchen. And while I was there... You know, I, I moved around a little bit in the hotel, and then I ended up on the front of the house. So I started to learn about service and, and what it meant to, you know, that part of the business. It's like in the kitchen, I had a view of 
waiters were this lazy lot that did half the hours of work and you know they made lots of money and I was this you know craftsman in the kitchen um, but it really opened my eyes you know it's, it's a completely different skill set um, it's 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 less hours but it's there is work involved um, and you have to have some charm and charisma to make money and, and, and we did well there from there I went and worked with him then at Graham Elliott opening it up as the GM um, so at that point it was complete full circle I'd done just about every job you know including the high school days of busing and dishwashing that there was to do in a restaurant and, and now I've been blessed enough in, in the business outside since I left restaurants to have enough money to invest in them so it's it's very ironic to actually see the whole picture and to understand it and it's still a passion of mine but I got into writing about food when you know I left the industry I didn't want to be a guy who had one or two stories that were the same stories because I would be happy or frustrated with it at a restaurant experience so I started writing and, and the nice thing about writing for me is that once I write I never I never need to talk about it again it's truly cathartic for me so when people come up and they're like I read your post let's discuss it I'm kind of like I've said everything I've thought to say and maybe there'll be something that'll pop into my head after that I wish I had said but um, the writing you know I didn't really know where it would go I did it for fun it's very cathartic I, I you know if it ended tomorrow I would be sad but I would understand and I would probably just apply my trade on Twitter but you know I, I enjoy the writing but I don't necessarily and I told you earlier I, I forget that people actually read it um, you know I, I, the ramblings of an insane old restaurant worker um, but it's fun, and the fact that people enjoy that part of it, you know, I like. Because I think when it comes back to the review thing that you're asking about, I think in Chicago you've got lots of writers. And the neat thing about that is, is there, if, depending on who you are and your experiences and what you like, you can find a critic that kind of suits your needs. Like, you know, Mike Sewell is very hipster, and, you know, he likes kind of the completely out-of-the-way funky spots. And if that's your bag, he's the guy you go to. Um, if you're young and maybe newer to the city and timeout's kind of your rag, then you've got that. You've got, um, you know, Phil who writes to a massive audience. And I think, he, you know, not to say that Phil's old, but he writes to an older crowd um, and a very established crowd. And there's something to that. Um, but I think the neat thing is, and, you know, Mike Nagrin is a guy who's just poured all this passion in. And if you like his opinions and his soliloquies about God knows what that come out sometimes... You know, you can appreciate that. He's almost Dennis Miller-esque. But I think you you find the person that you identify with or people and then take that for what it's worth when they write. Um, and that can be good and bad. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the food writers in town, but I look at things in a very different perspective. And I think when the readers are looking at that, they're trying to figure out what perspective they want. Um, you know, I wish it was more, there was more of a corrected scale of what, the eight, like if you were what the four star to one star was, but then you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt and I guess navigate your way through. If you're somebody living in the burbs reading all of these articles about the same restaurant, it's hard to figure out, you know, what does one star mean to one person versus three to another versus four to a, the third? Who knows? Well, or time out having five threw me off completely. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's funny when I, I mean, it's not funny. It's, it's, it's funny to me that, you know, somebody will get four stars from time out and they'll get all of these accolades and congratulations on social media. And I'll, you know, and, and I'll that was actually of, a B. Right. And, and you're <laughs> kind of like, you know, that they're out of five. Like, this isn't actually four. But the other part about time out, which totally confuses me, is that they gave Donut Vault five stars. So it's like, 
where is the spectrum and where is the perspective of, you know, does this mean it's the greatest donut ever made and there is no other donut to really, like this is the gold standard of all donuts and it was the first, but then you're also comparing that donut to Alinea at five stars, which, you know, is if Alinea were to make a donut, this is the donut they would make? Well, I, I don't, I don't right, understand and, how that works. And, you know, when, when Brandon Sotokoff was not happy about the review that Green Street smoked meats, I get the name right, you know, that he got, he was saying, well, three is like the best that a barbecue restaurant should deserve or something like that. And I, I, I totally disagree with that. Actually, my five stars would all be barbecue restaurants in Texas. And, you know, <laughs> fine, fine, Bar- fine dining struggles to reach that. Barbecue but- is one of those where you look at it and it's like if somebody said to me, hey, I want to open a barbecue restaurant, I'd be like... You're messing with some people's religion. Well, I think there's also the, a human temptation to, I spent this much money, therefore I loved it. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you feel that sometimes? Are you, are you so skeptical coming out of the, the business that you know what's going on? No, I don't know if I'm skeptical. I think for me it's, you know, if I'm spending money, I expect, let's put it this way, if I'm going to spend three or $400 on dinner, I expect your technique to be spot on. I don't expect food to be off or undercooked or overcooked or I expect it to be correct cooked correctly I expect it to be seasoned I think there should be a balance of acid and salt I think your service levels should be to a certain uh, level um, if if I don't like your creativity and I don't like your menu that's between me and you but I think if you can execute your vision and your belief then that's really you know on me to say you know what they did a great job. They nailed what they wanted to do, but it wasn't for me. And that's kind of the lesson I learned at Trotters, where it's like, you know, you get this beautiful piece of fish to overcook it. You've destroyed a year, a year and a half's worth of a lot of people's work getting it there. The only person who can kind of look at that piece of fish and say, you know what, this fish is bad, is the diner. And, and that's really on them. So I think when I look at fine dining, I, my level of expectation is you're going to do the best that you can do and hopefully I'll get it and hopefully I'll like it and your servers will send me the message and, and sell me on what or t- explain to me what you're doing but if you can't deliver on your technique and if you forget salt or there's no acid or you know you just are stumbling out of the blocks and I'm spending 400 bucks I'm going to be more upset with you that way You mentioned creativity. I think that's kind of the other dividing point, too, is, you know, some things come out of expectations of chef creativity. Some come out of expectations of tradition. And we have an example of that in front of us here at Forno Rosso, which is Grandma's Caponata. I mean, you're you're of an Italian background. You you are a partisan of that, I think, uh, based on your writings. So, I am. So tell me your, your philosophy of Italian food in Chicago, what it, uh, as I dish up some caponata here. I think How do the, you feel about the it? The interesting thing about Italian food in Chicago is that Chicago has this expectation of a red sauce Italian red leather booth joint. You know, that if you know Sinatra were to come into town, you would see him in the corner with the boys. Right. You know, Which was Slicker Sam's in Melrose Park. Back in the day, he there did do that. There were so many neighborhood joints. I mean, that's what you expect. You want to see an old man or a group of old men sitting in the corner drinking wine out of a small shooter glass. You know, it could be beautiful wine, but they don't need Riedel. They don't need these other things. It's, it's simple food. It's direct. It's, it's made with care, and it's grandma's recipe. There's some element of family there, and it's... 
you know, kind of, you know, they're cooking like you're in their home. I think that's the expectation. What we often get, I think, is very different. And, you know, it's something I've struggled with and I'm trying to figure out. You've got, I don't, I don't brush aside the new Italian. I worked at one in Fortunato that was so far from a red sauce joint, but it was still good and it was different. It was ahead of its time. And I think, you know, Chicago and the food scene 12 years later is, is ready for that. But, you know, Italian food in town, again, you're dealing with someone's notion of being Italian. My grandfather made gravy with neck bones, and rarely do I taste that flavor anymore when I eat sauce. And when I go places and it's just, you know, tomatoes from the can dumped with some garlic that's raw and never really cooked and, you know, just kind of thrown together, it's extremely disappointing. Um, so do you even go out for Italian or you're too traumatized? <laughs> I, I, I have been lately only because there's been so many that have opened and it intrigues me. I very rarely will order like a red sauce pasta, although I think Piccolo Sonio, you know, Tony Priola does a great job. And I've accused him of, you know, using neck bones when he says he doesn't. I think he's, <laughs> I think he's shading the truth a little. Um, but I've gone out a lot more and I, I've yet to find the place. And I live around the corner from La Scarola and Piccolo, and I, I'll go to Piccolo a lot more. Um, La Scarola and some of those older school joints, they just seem lost and and sloppy to me now they, like something's changed and they're just treading water with their their reputations um but, you know Cicchetti intrigues me Azura since they're nearby I'm, I'm not a fan of Umbra or Nanti Prima um RPM I as you remember trashed and as you I think you wrote that I was insulted as an Italian and it was definitely frustrating from what I got um and then Nico is another one you know I think you know, everybody argues about the value of a $400 dinner at Next. I think that question needs to get drummed down into the $15 lunch discussion. You know, what are we getting now for our money? And I think value is a huge, huge thing for me when I'm going out to dinner anywhere. You know, is this worth what I'm doing? And I don't know if that's just me and, you know, the economics major that I was or if that's something more. But, you know, I look at it and I think Nico was good. I need to go back and you know, think again, is this good for the value? Is it what it should be? Um, and the others I need to get back to as well. And there's a few others I need to sneak into to kind of get my head around it. And I, I mean, going back to kind of the classic red sauce place, do you even think that exists in Chicago anymore? I mean, it, it, I don't exists think it does. In, it maybe exists in Melrose Park. Right. You need to get into the neighborhoods. And I think you even get into the, the old Italian neighborhood where Bacchanalia and the others are. I think most people would be... I would love to see some of the foodies who write in those places because I think they would look at the, the fake plants and the, and the very dated wallpaper, and I think it's not about that. It's about the food. And You know, I've been to a few of them. They're, they're not bad, but I'm not driving out there to, right. to eat them again. I, I, I mean, when it comes to Italian food, I typically stay at home and cook it. And so we're talking about uh, the Heart of Italy neighborhood on the south side which is a little strip that has a bunch of old Italian places. Well, I think the other question there, I, the only one I've actually been to is Il Vicinato, which is fine, but, I mean, there were some things that were really nicely done and some things that were kind of past their prime, clearly. I would agree, and I think that's the same to say about Taylor Street. And I don't know if it's the next generation or the next group that's taken over a restaurant name. Um, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Louis Armstrong 
we could all play the same music he played doesn't mean you can play it like him. And I think it's to go, you know, grandma makes this caponata or grandma makes her sauce. Not a, Just because you have the ingredients and you've watched her make it a thousand times doesn't mean you can put that in there. And I think, you know, as cheesy and as soft as it'll sound, there's a sense of love or emotion that goes into it that you just can't teach. Um, but I think that's part of it, you know. We can all we can all look at, you know, the same music that Louis Armstrong played, but it doesn't mean you're going to sound like Louis Armstrong. As a food blogger, you know, I try to hold myself to the same level as critics. Well, they'll go to a restaurant twice. If I was just truly going out and dining and I ate once and it was horrible, I would never go back. Why spend your own money on that? Right. Yeah. I would never spend my money again. I would never go back. And I tell my friends don't go back. But I feel like if a restaurant has a bad day, I've got to give them another chance. And when it's bad, again, ugh. I don't know. I think there's there's a difference on that. I mean, I've been to places that I thought were probably good and they I could just see it kind of falling apart in front of me. And then there are places like, okay, I know what kind of hack joint this is. And I don't need to be here ever again. No. I mean, there's places, and I just won't write you know, or I'll just do it in a, you know, a quick look post or something like that. But I, 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 I can't physically make myself go back after such a bad, slow experience. Um, you know, there's there's certain restaurants where they set up their servers to fail, and you can see that. You know, their servers are running like mad, and there's no way they're going to get you water and do the service that they deserve. Um, set up because physical layout of the place is poor and they're giving they're, they're not they're not you see managers who won't pour water you see managers who won't you know pick up a dish and clear a table you see managers who won't drop wine or open wine for a table you see them there's 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 short on bussers there's maybe one food runner and the server is truly on an island in trouble and there's variations of that in lots of restaurants and I think you've got to be as a restaurant team even if you're not getting tipped you've got to help one another and I think that's really what a lot of those restaurants are about it's you know not about what the person did or didn't do and that they don't do their side work but as a manager you're the lifeguard of that restaurant you've got to know what's going on at all 60 tables or all 40 tables where people are at and that takes time it's kind of like you know when you're they talk about in sports that the game slows down the first day I was on the floor I was all over the place and I was a mess and then I became a captain and it slowed down again so if chef asked me about any of my six tables, I knew where their mise en place was with silverware. I knew what course was coming next. I knew the wine was down or not. Okay, you guys hold the hard or not yet? Um, so, yeah, let's go. Let's go. Well, you guys hold, let me know. Yeah, yeah no, you can bring them out. That's fine. Let's go. That's great. Thanks. So I think it's a matter of... Good example there. She knows she yeah. knew not to put it in pizzas for guys who were recording a podcast. <laughs> but I think that's the awareness. And then as a manager, it's not about your station. It's about the whole restaurant. You know, is the kitchen slow tonight? Is the kitchen, you know, pushing food out? Are my food runners not getting things out fast enough? You've got to see the whole room in its entirety, and you've got to know who's having a bad time. And your servers have to know that they can communicate. You know, if your server's got a table that just can't make a decision and they can't, you know, decide on anything, you've got to go over there and get them the wine. You've got to make that happen so that the whole place doesn't fall and it's not a house of cards where you're in trouble. And I see managers who don't want to do that because they feel they're managers and... Whether they're they're done doing service as a server or they were never servers and they don't want to do that, that's a whole other ball game. But it's almost like the mom. You've got to know everything that's going on in the house. And if something's quiet, 
you know, something is wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, where's your father? He's too quiet right now. It's like, why is that table stopped talking and they're not moving and they were happy 20 minutes ago? What's happening? You know, you've got to do a lap. I see these people with, you know, the servers or the managers with stuff in their ear and it's like, they can stand there and communicate. That's great. But I think you need to really walk the room and see what's going on. I'm one of the few who writes who's actually spent a considerable amount of time in a restaurant and I don't consider myself a writer and and I never went to journalism school I was horrible at English my first few posts were horrific um, and it was the it was the practice of writing constantly that got me better but I think you get some of these people who write about food who aren't understanding you know or they're making it about themselves and it's not about you it's about telling the story for the restaurant and it's understanding that my food was slow but because you were sat because you took two extra minutes the six top or the two top or the eight top you know got all in at once before you so now you're back of the bus when it comes to you know getting your food you're going to be a little bit slower than everybody else or if it picks up the pace it's because you've caught up to other people in a tasting menu and I think it's understanding that when you're sitting in a restaurant it's looking and knowing that you know if they've recognized you are they still delivering to everybody in the restaurant around you and I think you know there's a whole other discussion about anonymity and reviews, but you know, if you, if you know you've been pegged, you've got to figure something out to know if this is a real experience. Because you know, I've gone into restaurants that others have written glowing reviews about, and I'm like, this is not the restaurant you described. Or we have very different beliefs on what is good. Um, and I find it's got to be the latter. You know, to think that restaurants, let's put it this way, the restaurants that are, that are concerned about their reviews are Googling every guest and they're making sure they know who's walking through the door well before pre-shift and calling it out. You've got people on the floor who can call out bloggers and they can call out food critics so that you know to dial it in. And I remember sitting at a restaurant when Phil Vitell walked in, the restaurant's no longer open, and he sat there for a good eight, 10 minutes before his server got there. And the manager came over to touch our table. I was like, he asked how everything was. I'm like, good, I'm like, by the way, the guy at that table is going to own you if you don't get on it because it's Phil Vitell. And they had no clue. Huh. And I think, you know, that that's important. You've got to know, you've got to know who's, who's reviewing you, you know. And, and, you know, I know some chefs will walk in and say hello to them. They'll play the dance, the game. You know who it is. And, you know, we've done this before. You were here two weeks ago with somebody else. And, you know, but you kind of know. There was a post recently on Facebook I saw where it was, you know, talking about reviewers and critics and how they are, and they all have tells. You know, one of them when he, you know, when they start to fidget, you know that it's a good experience. Others, you know, there's nothing you can do. I mean, I, there was a there was a writer, and, and and a certain editor will know who I'm talking about. Came in, reviewed Graham Elliott. I gave them the the perfect server. I touched the table twice. I knew exactly what was going on. And then to read the review and have them say, you know, our server was inattentive. Nobody helped us with wine. And it's just like you had a preconceived notion. It, it, I, I mean, it still angers me today and I get frustrated. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to that, the reviewers, you know, and even the readers, you have to ask yourself, if this person were my server and I were to ask them, should I get the salmon or should I get the halibut? The reviewer that you're most identifying with would you trust that person to tell you which fish to get? Because that's exactly what it is. Joe's Food Block is Chicago food snob. Forno Rosso Pizzeria is at 3719 North Harlem.
Now, I recently did an interview with a guy who has a blog about podcasts, Vox Electro. And one of the things I said about this podcast was that I don't think of it as so much as doing radio as doing audio. Now that sounds deep. I'm not entirely sure what it means. But I guess what it means is I'm doing less of a show and more little audio pieces that take you inside a place or to meet somebody and really find out what makes them tick. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the other kind. I'm all for that, too. But this is what I want to do. I think it's cool. And if you think so, too, if you think it's cool to go to these places and talk to these people, I'd like to ask a couple of favors of you. First, subscribe at iTunes and follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter, it's at Skyful of Bacon. And Facebook, there's a Skyful of Bacon page that you can like, so you don't have to friend me and get the rest of my boring life. Then, share these podcasts with other people. Write a review at iTunes, retweet it on Twitter, share it on Facebook, whatever. And finally, there's a pretty good assortment of past shows available online by now, too. So if you haven't heard my interview with Ina, or with Gus from Greek Islands, or my visit to where they make country hams, or whatever, check those out, too. I'll have links for all of this in the show post at skyfullofbacon.com. On a snowy day in February, my son Miles and I drove the hour and a half from Chicago to a farm in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Nothing was growing, the land was still and blanketed in snow, but that doesn't mean nothing was going on. The farmers, Karen and Jody Warner of Big Head Farm, were eager to talk to me about one of the main events of the year for them, the annual Good Food Festival in Chicago where organic farmers like them network with buyers, investors, and not least, customers looking for good local food. I was there to make a movie promoting the festival, which runs March 13th to 15th, to tell farmers why they should be there, and other people why they should care about this kind of food. The movie runs 14 minutes, and being video, it boils the words down to the best little bites. But the Warners are so good at explaining why the festival and farming matters to them that I thought you'd enjoy hearing a fuller version of what they had to say. So listen to this, then see how it takes on a different life in words and visuals in the 14-minute movie, Networking the Land. So farming was all my idea because I liked being outside all the time. And in Chicago, we had this little piece of dirt about that wide. Two feet by two 10 feet, feet. Two feet by 10 feet. And I grew a whole bunch of peppers, tomatoes, basil, mint. Um, and I just loved being outside and I hadn't figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up yet. So when I heard about, I was doing some research online and I knew about what CSAs were all about. And then I found um, Angelics Organics Learning Center. And I took the Farm Dreams course and I came prepared with my paperwork to sign up for Farm Beginnings, which is a like a nine month long program that they do to introduce you to farming, do some business planning and those kind of things. And I um, decided that I would go ahead and take Farm Beginnings. Jody joined me for a few sessions, um, mm -hmm. but he was pretty busy. So um, he was in school at the time, I think, which, yeah, weren't you? Mm -hmm. And then uh, I lost my job and 
Um, Jody had already switched from his job to being back in school, and then that was kind of like the kick in the pants we needed to just say, okay, here we go. Jumping whole, whole body into the lake and see what happens. It was about a year, a year of planning before we were actually in production, um, trying to figure out, you know, what type of farm were we going to have, where were we going to have it, who was our market, who was our customer. I did a ton of research on um, CSAs, what people liked, and especially what people didn't like. And I uh, came up with the um, solo share, I call it, which is a very small CSA share. It's kind of a starter or for single people. Um, and that was, that's been probably our number one seller. Um, because most of our customers are in Chicago. And I knew a lot of people that were single people that you know, were in school or, you know, just hadn't met the right person yet. And they wanted to do a CSA, but when you get a huge box of vegetables every week, you have to do something with them. You can't just say, stick them in the fridge and take them out and microwave them later. That's doesn't work that way. You've got basically a box of raw materials and you have to figure out what to do with it. Um, so it's an investment in time. It's, uh, it's an investment in the farm. And, um, that's, that's, so that's how we started. Um, my CSA customers are the heart and soul of our farm. Without them, we don't have a business. Um, but clearly we've moved on to some bigger projects like the blueberries and the apples are some massive projects. And we have, um, a but lot. it's all for our customers. It's yeah. And, and there's just so much that we can't, I mean, I could give them thousands of pounds of blueberries, but not everybody has like a walk-in freezer. <laughs> So, um, so then, yeah, when we moved here to, uh, this farm that we're currently on, it was two years ago and, um, the, the gentleman who owns this farm found me because I was out there begging someone to buy me a farm. And, uh, I, I learned pretty quickly, if you don't ask for help, you're never going to get it. So I went out on the internet and I said, Hey, does anybody want to buy me this orchard that I had found that was for sale? Um, Zachary wrote me an email and said, I don't really want to buy another farm, but I've got this one. And we, uh, talked. And then about a year later, he said, um, come on down and see it. And 10 days later, we had leases signed on it. And, uh, here we are. We hope to never move again because moving a farm. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever moved a farm. You. <laughs> no. uh, um, we, we know guys with trailers and, and giant trucks. This was before we owned our giant truck and trailer. And, you know, a couple tractors and farm implements and never in my life do I ever want to do that again. And uh, you have to learn the land again. I mean, you have to know your soil. You have to know what can grow in it. You have to know what it needs. Um, and because we're doing the organics, we are on a rotation. So you, can, if you find out that the potatoes go really good in one field, they may not go really good in another. But because you can't plant them in the same place again, you're you're constantly running into that. So um, it's going to be probably a, a three to seven year process where we learn this farm. Um, we're in our second year going into our third. And um, we've done a couple of things, you know, working with the Natural Resource Conservation Service. We're, we're um, participating in their environmental quality incentive program which is a grant program where we do crop rotations um, we do plantings for beneficial insects like pollinators and native pollinators and um, we we really want to keep it 
a biodiverse farm with a really healthy soil system. Um, so that's what we do on a daily basis. We just, you know, try to work with nature and try to give the farm what it needs to be able to grow all this good stuff. get back to you know because we are talking about good food and the good food festival right yes <laughs> i was gonna get to that so yeah so okay so i'll tell you my little history with the good food festival 2010 i first heard about the festival and it was because it was right after it ended so it was like in march of 2010 i heard about what happened at the good food festival i was reading some articles or blogs or something online and i thought oh my gosh that sounds like the most amazing place to be ever and then I found out that FamilyFarm.org, which is the group that puts the festival on in Chicago, um, does a lot of work with farms and um, they help with food safety on the farm uh, post-harvest uh, handling, which I took a course that was really educational. And they've been great. Anytime I um, need a resource or have a question, you can go on their website, call them up and they are there for you as a farmer and and they're especially they're trying to connect people who are the consumers or the restaurants or the wholesalers and trying to connect them with growers like ourselves uh, because not every grower is good at the business side of farming and the business side is the sales the marketing the networking the internet you know the facebook and twitter and <laughs> all that stuff you know um I'm lucky that I just have a very diverse background. I've been doing um, sales and mostly in retail, but I've worked for a lot of um, retail and sales and B2B and all that good stuff. So I have a lot of information that I bring to the table, but I'm, I'm working with farmers around here who I'm helping to kind of get on the web and uh, learn about these things. And I keep telling them, I'm like, you gotta go to things like the Good Food Festival. You just have to, because that's where your customers are. That's where the people that you wanna talk to and you wanna sell your produce to, the people that you are gonna, you know, provide thousands of pounds of fresh packed organic blueberries or hundreds of thousands of pounds of, you know, organic apples. Those people are there. Yeah, I uh, met Door-to-Door uh, -door Organics the first year that I was there when we moved to um, this farm, the Blueberry property, because I knew that festival would be the one place I could go to talk to wholesale, wholesale buyers, especially on the trade day, which is Friday. Um, so you get to talk to restaurants, uh, wholesale buyers, grocery stores, all those kind of good places. Um, which would be a little bit hard to do otherwise. I mean, you can make phone calls, but it's better to talk to people in person. I think anyway, from a sales perspective. <laughs> now, how do you do that? I mean, you didn't have any product at that time, so. Right, so you take lots of pretty pictures and you um, make a bunch of brochures and you say, here's what I'm gonna do. Kind of like what we did when we started the farm. We just said, um, okay, here's our website. Told a little bit about us and then said, okay, we're going to start selling CSA shares. We'd not planted a thing yet, never even grown anything, to be honest, and um, on any scale. So it, And we had, didn't have the slightest idea of what we were doing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, an epiphany, to say the least. <laughs> Going from a desk job in Chicago to uh, a farmer, <clears throat> it was shocking. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, looking back on it now, five years later, I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, 
I wouldn't change it for the world. This is a great life to live. So what were the shocking parts? Uh, I think that if I could boil most of it down into uh, two ideas. One, things don't grow the way you think they will. Nature's funny. Nature will grow most anything, but nature also grows every weed known to man. <laughs> so they don't grow the way you think you do. And secondly, I don't think I, I had a, a real grasp of how much work it was going to be. It's 105, 110 hour weeks, uh, nine months a year. And uh, I probably wouldn't have been as supportive as I was if I had known that. <laughs> Because it used to be that you would, it used to be that you would wake up and go to work, and now you wake up surrounded by work. And you go to bed at work. And you <laughs> and you yeah. go to bed thinking about work. <clears throat> I think the one thing is that. In Michigan, there hasn't been a really huge movement toward organic. There are a couple of people out there doing it. Um, some of them are near to us here. Um, in fact, there's one of the only, actually two of the only other certified organic apple orchards are pretty close by. Um, and they've been great, you know, uh, as far as giving us help and giving us assistance. You know, if we call them and say, how do you deal with this? And how do you deal with that? Um, and uh, I think what we ran into when I started the farm, if we had our neighbors and a lot of the neighbors in these rural areas to stop and they say, who are you and what are you doing? And we would say, well, we're farmers and we're growing organically. And they would say, you can't do that. And I would always say, why not? Um, yeah, because we got here somehow without all the chemicals and it's just a matter of finding that natural balance again to keep things healthy, to still have a harvest and to provide the kind of produce that people expect. Um, so it's re-educating people on what food really looks like. Um, and it, it may not be what you see at the local grocery store. Um, you'll see some of it, it's starting to change a little bit. But yeah, doing it organically kind of sets us apart. And we're newbies, we're greenhorns. We've never done this before, so it's a huge learning curve. I mean, I have no idea what I'm doing, but we're trying. <laughs> and you know, I mean, that's all you could do is you just gotta get out there and put one foot in, in front of the other and just keep going at it. And you know, if the deer eat all your lettuce, okay, move on, do something else and keep growing. That's the thing, the seeds are gonna keep growing, the plants are gonna keep growing, um, and Remember we just have to kind of help them out. The deer ate all our lettuce. Well, they ate the romaine. <laughs> yeah, they ate all the romaine. Uh, a couple years before that, the groundhogs, rabbits, ate all our spinach, all our lettuce. All the squash. All the squash. Uh, farming, farming is failing. I and got you, attacked you, by a turkey. Karen got attacked <laughs> by a turkey. I got attacked <laughs> by a turkey. It was great. Actually, I realized that the moment that he started running towards me, that I'm a lot bigger than the turkey. But it took me that, you know, moment where I was like, wait a minute. Oh yeah, I'm bigger than the turkey. Yeah, I was scared for a minute. Less than a minute. Uh, deer are a giant pain in the butt. They <laughs> eat the uh, blueberries, they eat the apples, they eat the apple trees. Uh, but there's enough hunters in the area, we really don't worry about them because sooner or later somebody's gonna hunt the, the, hunt the deer. 
We also see hunters that like to shoot uh, coyotes. And we object to them shooting coyotes because coyotes eat the things that eat our vegetables. They eat the ground, groundhog, squirrels, rabbits, mice, yeah. mice, and things like that. So we, it's, it's one of the reasons we don't let folks hunt on our land because we don't want them to shoot the coyotes that are in the area. As yeah. much as they are, are, are considered a menace in Michigan, they're beneficial to us because they eat the things that eat our vegetables. Yeah, yeah you gotta have predators. You gotta have predators because if you don't have predators, then all you have is the things that eat your vegetables, things that we like to eat. Um, it's a balancing, it's a balancing act, just like everything. It's a, you know, nature's gonna put things back in balance if we weren't around, so we just kinda have to work with that and make things grow. So this year, yeah, I actually signed, I, last year I was very proud to be the very first person to sign up to be an exhibitor at the Good Food Festival, and I did it again this year. <laughs> they send an email out, and, I'm, and I immediately fill it out and send it right back, and I'm like, here you go, I'm gonna be there. And so this year I got a corner booth, you're gonna see me every day of the festival. We're gonna have all kinds of good stuff. You can get your zombie-free t-shirts. So where'd the zombie free thing come from? Oh, zombie free. Um, I, uh, there are a couple of phrases in the world um, about genetically engineered foods. You know, there's genetically engineered GE food, GMO food, genetically modified. Um, and uh, one of the jobs I used to have, I used to frame the Monsanto catalogs every year. And I would look through their, it was their kind of, you know, professional stuff catalog. And there's some scary stuff that they sell. And I thought, this is kind of freaky. And so I started calling, you know, genetically engineered food, zombie food. And, um, and we decided, you know, as we went organic, if you get certified organic, anything, genetically engineered foods are not allowed. You, so if you're in the grocery store and you're concerned about genetically engineered foods, look for the certified organic label and you won't have any of that so that's where the zombie free came from we don't use you know toxic chemicals we don't use uh genetically engineered seed and uh it kind of became a thing and now zombies are like this like movement you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like zombies everywhere and then people see the t-shirts that we wear that say zombie free since 2009 and they're like well what does that mean <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, if you come to, we have, um, if you go to the Good Food Festival too, that's where we premiere our new assortment of buttons. We've done these little tiny one inch buttons every year. And it's we, our entire advertising budget. Yeah, pretty much that and the website. Um, so Jody's really fun at really good at. It's all smoke and mirrors. <laughs> designing these really cool little buttons. So every year we have a new set of buttons that we premiere at the show and give them away. Um, and last year, I think the biggest hit was the one that said, Monsanto can kiss my ass. We, our second most popular uh, button is a button that says, we can feed you after the apocalypse. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, yeah, we're afraid of what that might create. Cause <laughs> heaven forbid the apocalypse comes and we're going to have thousands of people coming here. Yeah, and I am not a doomsday prepper. No. <laughs> I read something recently, too, that said, um, please don't buy those apocalypse seed packs because even if you buy the the apocalypse you know seed collection that supposedly will feed you and your family after you know nuclear war happens um you still aren't going to know how to grow those things 
it's like it's just a complete waste of money unless you actually know how to grow. Yeah, have anything. them call us. If you're gonna buy those, call us. We'll tell you they we didn't know how to do it. <laughs> The Good Food Festival is March 13th to 15th, with the main public event on Saturday the 15th. You can watch the movie version of this story and find out more at goodfoodfestivals.com. They should call it the best food festival. <laughs> the best food on the planet. Um, yeah, you just, oh, there's so much good food. Bring your money, bring your wallet. What else can I tell you? Would you, would you believe, Mike, that I'm the chatty one? <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope this episode will have helped when the apocalypse comes. Thanks to Abe Conlon, Adrian Lowe, and everybody at Fat Rice. Erling Wu Bauer and Jenna Lieberman from Nico and One-Off Hospitality. Joe Campagna of Chicago Food Snob and Nick Nitty of Forno Rosso Pizzeria. And Karen and Jody Warner of Big Head Farm at BigHeadFarm.com and Grant Kessler of The Good Food Festival. Music is by Kevin McLeod. I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. This was episode number nine.